6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. He points out to them, they have not yet been martyred, but they will. And many will face that possibility. We're already ahead, probably had that experience. But if they're going to mingle with those that are observing established rituals in the temple, those persecuting them, the concept was that they might forget that they had previously renounced it by their baptism. So by pretending they're still in Judaism, they thought they could avoid. But that's in effect denying Christ. And that's a tough spot to realize that they're in. And there's analogies today. Even Paul, by the way, had observed Jewish rituals as memorials to Christ during his ministry. We see that in Acts and mentioned 1 Corinthians. So, because of all this, many of these were not assembling with other believers, but were trying to re-identify themselves with established Judaism in order to escape persecution. That's what the writer is arguing against. And just like their ancestors back at Kedosh Barnea, the recipients of this epistle had a promise of God of entering into His rest. This is not the rest of salvation in the sense of justification, because they're already recognized as believers. And it's also not the future millennial rest in which all persecution will cease. Therefore, we can conclude that the rest is that faith life rest which the believer enters by faith, in which he enjoys the inheritance that God gives to those that are faithful. That's resting from our attempts and relying on the Holy Spirit's leading. So we have the Hebrew Christians here before. Prior to that, we have Psalm 95 and all alluding to the rest, what we call the Canaan rest. The offer is still open, and the today is, is as we've indicated. But unto us, for, in chapter 4, we're starting to make some progress in 4 now, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. See, these readers were without excuse because they had the gospel preached unto them. And again, he draws a parallel to Numbers 13 and 14. Twelve men came back from the promised land and gave a report. And the children of Israel made a wrong decision as a result of that. These Jewish believers had received a message from twelve apostles. Remember there's 12, tri- 12 apostles that are going to rule on twelve thrones over the twelve tribes. Remember, the, got to remember the Jewishness of all that. The emphasis here is on the necessity of faith to attain spiritual blessings from an inheritance. He continues, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now there's a change of term here. The quote here speaks of my rest. What rest is that? That's a creation rest, because God is speaking to the rest he took. When did God cease his works. Genesis 2. Creation was finished. God finished it. And he didn't, he, he didn't go to sleep. Didn't, he didn't take a nap. No, he just stopped creating. That's where most of us, that's, 
uh, well, we actually uh, we get into the whole entropy laws, which really were introduced in response to Genesis 3. But he says, my rest, it is referring to God's creation rest. For we, we which have believed to enter into a rest. The statement that we who have believed uses the past tense and refers to the writer and the readers. They have already entered in to that, to that part of it. They do enter into rest. The author then switches to present tense. We who do now enter into that rest, presently entering into that spiritual rest. So this paradigm, he's going to point out that the final facet of the rest, the final facet is yet future. There's part of the past, there's part of the present, there's part of the future. We're going to discover the, the, uh, that paradigm going on again. The point is that because they have believed, they have begun to enter into his creation rest through the final facet, although the final facet is still yet future. These Jewish believers must continue to exercise faith to enjoy what this rest has to offer. The writer again points out that the wilderness generation did not enter the rest even though God had, pos had possessed it since the creation. God, through the psalmist David, announced the continued existence of the future rest. So he spoke in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise. He, if he was four, is pointing out, the, now introducing an, the analogy, not just back to the David, back to Genesis 2. He spake of a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, that God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. What is rest implying here? Ceasing from your works, okay? Works in the sense of where you're trying to earn your salvation. You can't do that. God has done it all. And that's really what we're talking about resting from. This is a reference to Genesis 2. The word here, by the way, is Shabbat, which means to cease, desist, or rest. So again, we have, the, we have these previous rests that we looked at so far. So far, we're alluding back to the Canaan rest. But now we've introduced a deeper allusion here that goes even before Kadesh Barnea. And that's Genesis 2. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day, and this was that God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if in this place now, if they shall enter into my rest. So he's used that word, if they. Again, there's an if, there's a condition on this particular rest. The author has just linked God's Sabbath rest at the time of creation with a rest that the Israelites missed in the desert. Somehow, conceptually, they have something in common. That's what he's focusing on. The typology of the salvation rest is used to show that Israel failed to enter into the rest by what? By divine decree, because God swore an oath. So God could not repent or change it. They had to do what he indicated. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Israel failed to enter in because of unbelief. Nevertheless, the invitation to enter God's rest remains open. It remaineth that some must enter in. So it's still open. Who's it open to? Those that are going to be faithful. It remaineth that some must enter therein. Now let's summarize all this. Though, through an exposition from the Old Testament concept of rest, the author exhorted them to hold fast to what? To their confidence in Christ. This was meant to encourage them to face the hardships boldly as the day approaches. What day? When the land would be burned, that's going to be, uh, show up in uh, Hebrews 6, and when the temple worship will disappear, and that's going to be predicted in Hebrews 8. So this is a very contemporary letter, specifically tailored to those 38 years between Christ's ministry and the fall of Jerusalem. But it has lessons for all of us, that's why it's here. Using Psalm 95, the author warned that the lack of faith and confidence in Christ could jeopardize their rest. Similar to what happened to the Exodus generation, potentially resulting in their loss of physical life. Potentially 
losing physical life. God's rest refers to Israel's worship before the personal presence of yod in Psalm 95, which could be forfeited by hardened, rebellious hearts like those of the Exodus generation. What we want to make sure we don't have is hardened hearts where we fail to enter into the promises he's of inheritance he's given us. The readers could still enter into his rest by continuing to place their faith in the life-sustaining presence of God. And the offer of rest is not limited to Exodus generation because it was first experienced by Adam and Eve in the garden after God rested. And you can get into that by taking, taking a look at chapter, uh, Exodus 2, uh, Genesis 2. Neither was it limited to the occupation of the land under Joshua because David himself, see, it wasn't limited to Adam and Eve, it wasn't just limited to the, uh, the uh, Exodus generation, Numbers 14, no, because David reoffers it, if you will, in Psalm 95, and it's here underscored for us, in effect, in the New Testament, in the Epistle of Hebrews. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, if so long a time, as it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. This is verse 7 continuing. And so the failure of the Israelites did not nullify that some will enter into that rest. According to God, renewed the offer as late as the time of David. That's important to us. And at that time, God call, set, again set a certain day, calling it today, presenting this opportunity to all readers of the psalm for whom today becomes their own today. What's our today? Our today is right now. And uh, today, today, today. So this is, we have it today also. And if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? So see, the Old Testament could have been quoted by many to show that the rest had already been uh, entered via the conquest of the land. Josh, that, 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 many people would argue that's foreclosed it. But this is a rebuttal to that because the writer's rebuttal is simple and sufficient. If it had been so, God would not have spoken later later about another day. So it's still open is the point. And the psalm, the psalm which you know, forms this text disproves any notion that the test had already been entered into and was no longer open. So there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now he turns away from the Canaan rest now to focus on the Sabbath rest. A different Greek word is now used here for this chapter uh, in this chapter for this rest, uh, sapatismos. And uh, it's only used here in the entire New Testament. It's uh, found elsewhere in Greek literature, uh, but in each case it refers not to the Sabbath day as we think of it, but rather the Sabbath observance or celebration. The view that's emphasized here is that of a celebration. And uh, that's a very interesting perspective. We so often think of this, keeping the Sabbath in the, from the Judaistic legalistic view, don't do this and don't do that, most of us fail, and some of them fail, to really get the spirit of the Sabbath, which is to celebrate the creation of God. And we can even do that today, is to celebrate the creation of God. And uh, sabbatismos, it's, it's the emphasis, not the cessation of daily activities, but rather the unhindered opportunity for the people to celebrate God's self-sustaining presence among them. That's really the thrust of the Sabbath rest even in Judaism, if it's done properly. And as such, the Sabbath celebration was meant to be a time of festive praise, including special sacrifices commemorating God's provisions. And that's really what the Sabbath is supposed to be all about, not following 613 rules or whatever. Its origin in creation suggests that his Sabbath celebration transcends the rest forfeited by the Exodus generation and enjoyed under David and Joshua. So this rest remains available today to everyone that believes, if we understand what it really embraces. 
For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. So this is in effect the ultimate refutation of what we would call legalism. Trying to please God by following rules is not the point. That's striving fleshly rather than resting in the leading of the Spirit, which is what he's talking about. Ceased from their own works. Entering into God's rest here is ceasing from our works and uh, our own works. We need to model our lives after Jesus Christ who is faithful to the one who appointed him as mentioned earlier in Hebrews 3, and must be careful to hold firmly to, until the end, to the end, the confidence we had at the first. Only then would they be able to rest from the works in the joyful possession of their inheritance in the Messianic kingdom. And by the way, that's a key thought now starting to merge out of all of this. The ultimate rest, the ultimate inheritance is in the, king, the Messianic kingdom. And many people fail to appreciate the book of Hebrews because they don't recognize its, its uh, focus on the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which, of course, is what we call the millennium. So here's some of it. We have the creation rest in Genesis 2. We have the Canaan rest that's alluded to not only in Kiddush, but in the Psalm and also in this epistle. But the ultimate rest is the millennial rest, which is indeed, of course, yet future all the way. There's a past tense of rest in the sense of our justification, our rest that Christ, our, our, our justification is done 100% by Christ alone. We can't add to it to try to do that is blasphemy. There's a present tense of resting, and that's spiritual maturity, walking by the Spirit and not uh, being under, recognizing we're no longer under the law. And that, boy, that's really going to emerge as we get to um, uh, chapter 7 and following. And there's the ultimate future tense, the kingdom inheritance. And it's, a, it's, it's very worthwhile to really undertake a study of the kingdom and to recognize there is a kingdom coming. That's what the, the, the angel confirmed to Mary in our Christ, what we call Christmas celebration, the nativity, that her child would sit on the throne of David. The pivotal event in the book of Acts is Acts 15, where they argue, what is a Gentile have to be saved? And what James quotes is Amos 9, verse 11, is that God is again going to establish the tabernacle of David. The idea of a Davidic kingdom on the planet Earth is what the millennium is all about. There's more prophecy on that period than any other period in the history, in, in the Bible. Let's labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So let us labor. You mean we got to strive? In a sense, yes. We want to labor to enter into that rest. And uh, it's, it's, this is different than the assurance that all Christians have that we have eternal life and that we will be raised up to enjoy it in the presence of God. There's more to it than just that is the point. You want to be partaking as a metakoi of the Messiah and his dominion over creation by doing his will until the end. So that when, when we appear before that judgment seat of Christ, you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Everybody before the judgment seat will be saved. Only some will be rewarded for their faithfulness. So we are partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence and steadfast to them. Again, here's this, flashing back to chapter 3, verse 14, the metakoi. If, this is critically important, if we hold fast to the end and if we become a metakoi. How do we do that? Well, it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, we have overcomers. Every one of the seven letters has, a, has an overcomer. And they have specific promises of things that they will, uh, be, are entitled to by virtue of their faithfulness. And, uh, what will they get? They'll be clothed in white, they'll be pillars in the Lord's temple, they'll be granted power over the nations, they'll enjoy the tree of life, not be subject to spiritual death, 
have their names acknowledged by Christ, be fed out of hidden manna, have a white stone with their name, write his own name. All these are worthy of careful study. And they're not, just because you're saved doesn't mean that you've become an overcomer. That's exactly the thrust of the commitments that are appended to each of those letters. And to sit with Christ on his throne. Some will, some won't. How do you become an overcomer? Well, you remain loyal to God, according to uh, Revelation 2, 3. They, they overcame tribulation and remained faithful. They were spiritually zealous. They did not deny Christ. They did not defile their garments. They kept the word of his patience. You know, it's interesting that even Peter denied Christ. And, of course, was reinstated before it was all over. Did he lose his salvation? No. But he lost his apostleship. Call, tell all the disciples and Peter, Jesus says. And that gets all straightened out, of course, in John 20, you know the story. So there is a chain of inheritance to be conscious of. From sanctification, that leads to partaking. Being a, and the partaking leads to overcoming, and overcoming leads to inheriting. That, that's the chain. Finishing up uh, for the word of... We now, the, the final part of this chapter shifts gears a little bit on another emphasis that's very exciting. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, having completed now, at this point, his exposition of Psalm 95, which all that foregoing had done, and which involves Israel's failure to enter the rest, the writer now br brings this warning, that this what we call warning uh, number two, to a conclusion that is sobering on the one hand and comforting on the other. The Word of God is quick. It's alive. It's alive. And uh, this is the very uh, Greek term that from which we get the word energy. And Zoan is alive and uh, powerful. And uh, uh, powerful is that word that uh, it means active, effectual, powerful. And uh, Isaiah 55, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, and it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and shall prosper to the thing that I send. What a commitment God's, my word shall not return void. Isaiah 55, 11. Jeremiah 23, 9. Is, is not my word like as a fire, the Lord says, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. And uh, continuing in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is quick and powerful and, and uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. Sharper than any two-edged That two-edged sword thing is all through the Scripture, by the way. And that's one of the reasons psychology is doomed. Because psychology is trying to map the internal architecture of an infinite state machine from its external behavior. And that's in, 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 in system engineering uh, a non sequitur. And that's the dilemma that psychology is in because they ha can only deal with the external behavior. They have, they, they, you can't discern the archi architecture in an infinite state machine by that kind of behavior. It's well known in in uh, engineering world, but not so widely appreciated in a broader sense. The word uh, 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 tomateros is uh, precise, decisive. It's sharp. And uh, Psalm 149, let the praise of God be in their mouth and two-edged sword in their hand. There's that term again. Um, he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword in Isaiah 49. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, make me polish shaft, and so forth. Take that in Ephesians 6, the armor of God. We have the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which I think most of us are familiar with that idiom. He had his right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. How tragic it is that we, some artists, classic artists, have tried to paint Christ 
from Revelation, and they, have, they literally have a, a, a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, idiomatically, it's, it's a mixing of graphic metaphors, but the point is clearly the word of God is the two-edged sword. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with what? The sword of my mouth. Again, that too. And uh, even Revelation 19, the climactic one, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that should smite danger. It gets interesting how these idioms are used consistently in both the Old and New Testament. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet, the miracle form, deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshiped his name. And they were both cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with what? The, the sword of him that sat upon the horse, the sword which proceeded out of his mouth. There again is the, the, the consistent use of these metaphors. Dividing asunder the soul and the spirit. Most of us use those terms so sloppily, but the soul and the spirit are distinct. And... Uh, the word psyche or soul and pneuma, breath or spirit, are distinct. But the only way you can discern between them is through the Word of God, not from psychological treatises or what have you. And the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In the Old Testament phrase, it's used the search of the reins in Jeremiah 17 and so on. The word thoughts points to the objective aspects of the thought process. The word intents points to the, subject, uh, the subjective aspect of the thinking process. The Word of God can discern between the two what a man is thinking and why he is thinking it. And uh, some people say, why is this in the Scripture? Well, that's to keep us out of the act. How often we try to presume intense. Because the Word of God is in all these things and because the Word will call believers into account someday, these Jewish believers need to give diligence to press on to spiritual maturity. That's the main theme of this entire epistle. Wrapping it up, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Wow. That's disturbing. But all things are naked and open unto him, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All Christians will someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ that give account for their lives. And that's, we picked that up in Romans 14, but also the definitive passage is 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's, it's our destiny. And if at that time their lives are seen to be marked by the kind of failure they have been warned against, they will suffer the loss of reward. Not their salvation, the reward. That's what 1 Corinthians 3 details. We've been through that. Seeing then that we have such a great high priest... That's introducing a topic that's going to be the main topic when we get to chapter 7. Seeing that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. Great high priest. See, there's every reason to hold firmly to the faith we possess because Jesus' priesthood has been already alluded to twice in this, chapter, in this uh, epistle. And we're going to be now moving into those passages that are going to uh, really define and explain what that means to us. We have, not, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So he knows where we're at. He's been there. He's the only one who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. Only one who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. Therefore, the sinless one has a greater capacity for compassion 
than any sinner could have for a fellow sinner. That's not obvious until you think about it, but very interesting. It's the only one that resists temptation completely, and there's only one person that's done that. Only the sinless one has a greater capacity for compassion than any sinner could have for a fellow sinner. So from all this, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace indeed. So for our next session, Hebrews chapter 5, we're now going to turn to the third pillar of Judaism, the Levitical priesthood. We've been through angels, we've been through Moses, now we're going to go to the priesthood. And we're going to explore the definitive presentations of the ultimate priesthood. We're starting a whole section. Section 5 through 10 is primarily going to deal with the ultimate priesthood, the ultimate uh, covenants, the ultimate, uh, uh, our ultimate high priest. We're also going to encounter next time when we get chapter 5, we're going to set the stage for what many would consider the most troublesome passage in the entire Bible. In chapter 6, verses uh, 4 through 6, there's a passage that taken out of context can be very disturbing. And yet, if we put it in context, in the epistle in general and in the warnings in particular, it'll be surprisingly clear, I believe. But be prepared that warning number 3 is the watershed issue for many students. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this epistle. We thank you, Father, that your rest is still available to us if we just but understand it. We pray, Father, that you would help each of us to hold fast to our confidence in Christ, to lean on the leading of the Spirit and not rules and rituals. Help us to enter in that we might indeed receive that which you have provided for us as our inheritance as we commit ourselves into your hands, asking you to strengthen us and guide us to be indeed medicoi, partakers of Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.